Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. Today, we're going to go back in time to the late 1920s and early 1930s, and we're going back to Australia. Our subject is one of those rare thoroughbreds who actually got a decent movie made of him. It is, of course, Farlap. I make no apologies for the fact that I watched the 1983 movie of Farlap over 30 times when I was a child, thanks to a knockoff VHS tape that my uncle, under strict instructions, picked up for me in Bangkok Airport. Even if I hadn't been obsessed with him, Farlap would have to make this podcast for any number of reasons. He still tussles with carbine in lists of Australia's greatest ever. But as the latter can't make the strict criteria of this podcast, in other words, horses whom we can actually watch on film, we are free to indulge this magnificent thoroughbred, Farlap, and his heartbreakingly short life that little bit more. One of the few great geldings, the Red Chestnut story started on the 4th of October 1926 in Alec Roberts's Sea Down Stud near Timaru in New Zealand's South Island. In contrast to the freakish ability he would ultimately show, he possessed a rather underwhelming pedigree by Night Raid, who never won, out of Entreaty, who was unplaced on her only start. Nevertheless, Sydney trainer Harry Telford thought there was something further back in his breeding that warranted an unsighted punt, so he persuaded businessman David Davis to buy the colt at auction in New Zealand, based on those distant bloodlines alone, for 160 guineas. But the horse's skinny frame and warty face horrified everyone when he arrived in Australia. Davis, a Russian-born but Australian-based American citizen who had made his wealth from importing fine china and silver, was furious and only agreed to proceed with the purchase if Telford trained the horse for free in exchange for two-thirds of his winnings. His rather pedestrian performances on the training grounds early on earned him the nickname Lightning among those watching the gallops. These included a Sinhalese-speaking medical student at the University of Sydney by the name of Aubrey Ping. And he suggested Farlap with an F, his own language's word for lightning, as a name for the horse. And so Farlap with a PH and in two words, as Telford thought that a champion needed two words and seven letters in its name, was christened later to be supplemented by many other nicknames, including the ubiquitous Big Red, Red Terror, and Bobby. The latter was given to him by his devoted lad Tommy Woodcock, who, after Farlap's first few unedifying performances, suggested settling him toward the rear and giving him a target to aim for. The tactic worked, and how. At three, and now filling a magnificent 17-hand frame, he won the Rosehill Guineas, AJC Derby and Craven Plate in great style and was beginning to prove himself near unbeatable. Aged four, and with the 1930 Melbourne Cup approaching, his increasing untouchability meant bookmakers stood to lose a fortune if he won. 
unknown gun-toting criminals made an attempt on his life just three days before the Cup. But fortunately, they missed both him and Woodcock. Incredibly, Farlap won the Melbourne Stakes that very afternoon. And just three days later, after nearly missing the race altogether due to a truck breaking down on the way to Flemington, he was duly crowned in the race that stops the nation, at odds of 11-8 to eight on. Under his now regular rider, the imperturbable Jim Pike, he carried a huge 9 stone 12 pounds to a three-length victory. No Melbourne Cup runner has ever started at shorter odds since. Farlap stayed at Flemington, and to demonstrate his unbelievable powers of recovery, just two days later won the Linlithgow Stakes, and 48 hours after that, the C.B. Fisher Plate. Indeed, 1930 and 1931 saw him cement his reputation as a true great, winning 14 straight races over the two seasons, over a wide range of distances. He nixed two Cox Plates, two Melbourne Stakes, the Futurity Stakes and many more, usually with a devastating burst of speed when coming from behind. Nothing, it seemed, could stop him, except crippling weight. The only time in his final 35 races that he ever finished out of the first two was when the Victoria Racing Authorities lumped him with an utterly unheard of 10 stone 10 pounds for the 1931 Melbourne Cup, where even coming a close eighth was deeply impressive against a winner carrying over three stone less. With nothing else to prove in the Antipodes, and the big handicaps in Australia prohibitive because of the weight allocations, Davis chose, against Telford's wishes, to send him to race in the US, initially in the Agua Caliente handicap, on the Mexican-US border, and at the time, the richest race in North America. As an invite-only event, over ten furlongs, a mile and a quarter, Farlap faced the best that that continent had to offer. The odds were stacked against him. He had endured a long sea crossing on the Ulimaroa, including a lengthy stayover in New Zealand, and then getting stressed any time his best friend Woodcock was out of sight. He was also running on dirt for the first time. He had cracked a hoof and was carrying top weight of nine stone three pounds. Ridden by lighter jockey Billy Elliott, and with Woodcock acting as the trainer in Telford's absence, Farlap was dropped straight to the rear of the field, a tactic virtually unheard of in US racing at the time. But between the five and four furlong poles, the afterburners kicked in, and Farlap astonishingly overtook the rest of the field to suddenly be three lengths clear. As jockey Johnny Longdon, riding the high-class Colt Bahamas, recalled, I was leading the field to the three-eighths pole. About that point, the big New Zealander went by the rest of us like we were tied to the fence. He held that lead until the end, smashing the track record and with US champion Reveille Boy no match. He was unofficial world champion, and being lauded as one of the best ever. As writer William R. Knack recounted, After Secretariat's triumph in the Triple Crown, I asked the elderly Francis Dunn, then a steward in New York, whether Man of War or Secretariat was the greatest horse he had ever seen. Neither, said Francis. I saw Farlap. Yet 18 days later, he was no more. We will never know for sure what happened at the private ranch near Menlo Park in California on the night of 4th to the 5th of April, 1932. 
Woodcock was woken by his beloved charge grunting in agony, clearly in horrific pain and sweating profusely. The vet tried to treat him for colic, but with no great success. Woodcock did all he could to keep his beloved horse moving in the stable, but eventually he collapsed. With blood and other fluid coming out of his nostrils, he hemorrhaged to death in a distraught Woodcock's arms. The autopsy revealed an inflamed stomach and intestine, possibly suggesting massive arsenic poisoning, which chimed with a 2006 study by an Australian research group. Illegal bookmaking groups were very active at the time, and might have felt threatened by Farlap's seeming invincibility, although there is no compelling evidence. Further, a necropsy in 2000 believed that it had identified bacterial gastroenteritis as the culprit. So which was it? All we do know is that Telford used to administer mysterious tonics to his horses, and some believed many years later that they had evidence to suggest that Woodcock, himself a hero in Australia, had admitted to giving his horse an accidental overdose. Perhaps it was more simple than that. Subsequent investigations at Menlo Ranch showed that some trees had recently been sprayed with an arsenic-based insecticide, which could easily have drifted onto the juicy grass in Farlap's paddock. Either way, the adoring Australian public were in disbelief that their global hero was dead, and aged only five by Southern Hemisphere dating. Even the Australian Prime Minister weighed in, Joseph Lyons calling it a great tragedy. But unlike so many equine champions, his memory didn't rapidly descend into obscurity, but only grew. Streets were named after him throughout the country. Songs were written about him. And that decent movie was made, refreshingly free of schmaltz and with Woodcock's direct input. His gigantic heart, three times the average size, remains the most requested exhibit at the National Museum in Canberra. His stuffed hide takes pride of place at the Melbourne Museum, and his skeleton has returned to the land of his birth, seen by millions at the Te Papa National Museum in Wellington. An incredible legacy, but a completely fitting one. Like his fellow Big Red, Man of War, Farlap the Horse has been gradually usurped by Farlap the Legend. But let us not lose sight of the reality underpinning this. He could only have drifted into myth by repeatedly displaying awesome power, ability, and an unparalleled will to win in the first place. It ultimately isn't hard to see how he ensnared Australia's hearts during hard economic times. Among the multitude of poems devoted to the horse who carried a nation's soul upon his back, Peter Porter's spare words capture it best. It was his simple excellence to be the best. And maybe he was. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and explore the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening. <laughs>